I was influenced by this. There's not that many scholars, as you point out, that go into these areas. And so I did my best to pay attention to and learn from the people who had become established, and especially Lance DeHaven Smith at Florida State working in public administration and Peter Dale Scott as well, who's written uh, very well about these issues. And Peter kind of blazed a trail more or less back in the 70s. Uh, as he started to look at the relationships between organized crimes, crime and the intelligence agencies and how those impacted American involvement in Vietnam. And it, the, he realized that there wasn't in the academy, because he had a PhD in political science, even though he was an English professor, he, he, did, he, he was well-versed in political science and was, you know, was more of a historian as well. But he coined this term parapolitics back in the 70s. And it was used to describe a practice of politics in which accountability is consciously diminished. And what that re- what that refers to is things like the covert operations of the United States, where you have the, the state pursuing policies or factions of the state, state actors, uh, who are able to act in such a way as to obscure the responsibility for this or that action. And he zeroed in on this, I think, with good justification, because there were all of these events like Watergate, like the Kennedy assassination, like the the drug traffic coming out of Southeast Asia, that just couldn't really be explained with a conventional framework uh, of liberalism that 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 his that mainstream history and mainstream social science uh, more or less accepts. Now, Peter also said. Um, that he was influenced and considered himself to be working in the vein of C. Wright Mills. And I think that, that that's because he said that, perhaps, but also because I like Mills. And I can't even remember which one I started reading first, but I knew that I liked Mills. And then when Peter said that, it made me even look more closely at Mills. And Mills wrote, and we'll talk more about him later, but he's an example of the kind of methodology that you should use, or at least the guiding principles of the methodology, which are that we should, as social scientists, we should want our, we should find methods that match the actual problems that we're trying to deal with. Okay, we shouldn't let the methods define and determine what we're going to study and try to address. And I think that that's a key point. You have to not, if you are supposed to study politics and so you go and study and get a political science degree and you study political science methods and they tell you that, well, you need to collect a whole lot of data that can be coded into, you know, into a certain sort of statistical value. And then you need to make sure that you run those through some regression analysis so you can find correlations and so on. And that's how you're, that's how you're going to uh, carry out your scholarship. Well, that's a problem if the if decisions are made in uh, opaque, in opaque circles, then uh, a, a, then what are you really doing? It's almost like you're sitting by a stream and watching things float by, and you take the notes on them year after year and compile all this data, but you never look upstream, right? It, it's 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 a way of really circumscribing what you can actually look into. And so Mills was great in talking about this. He says like, oh yeah, they they really love the fine little mill of statistical ritual. He also said um, 
it's he said it's common to say that what they find out that what these people can find with their research is true but it's not very important but i don't even really know how true it is that that's more or less my position on the mainstream of quantitative political science that this is not typically there are some cases where it might be useful but the majority of it is not that important because it presupposes kind of living in a place where there's the rule of law and transparency and where all the important information is available at your fingertips. But that is not the way that it works in a sort of oligarchic place that with a, a oligarchic political system with a sort of mostly ceremonial democracy where decisions are really made in a top-down fashion. And then like, that's just a recipe for churning out political scholarship that's going to obscure political reality. And which is what I think it ends up doing. And I think that that's just fine for the people who ultimately, you know, control most of the money in this society and thus have a big influence on how scholarship is going to be directed. So uh, this, this issue is how, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with this problem of uh, res- obscured responsibility in a democratic system? Um, and the way I think the one key way to try to grapple with this is that you know you're going to need to be specific and meticulous about your sources, and you're going to need to be honest about what your your confidence of different assessments. So if you think that you're confident that something happened or something that certain evidence indicates that something happens or it suggests that something's happened or one possibility is this, one possibility is that. But, you know, at some point when you have a preponderance of evidence, even if it contradicts official statements, then you need to, at, at some point, accept this as, you know, uh, the uh, historical reality. So I'm, uh, use, I've used the Kennedy ex- assassination as an example, not because I necessarily want to refer to it all the time, but because it's quite useful historically. But that's a case where uh, I, more, I more or less explain, I, I think I explained it early in the book, that I'm going to assume that this interpretation of Kennedy having been removed by his, his enemies is... Uh, backed up by a preponderance of evidence. And so I'm going to, you know, go with that for the rest of it. I'm not going to sit there and hash all this out forever and act like it's unknowable. It's like at some point you're going to want to make assessments and then extrapolate from them and work them into some kind of narrative. So this is, you want to be careful. You, I think you have to be especially careful in, in the burden of uh, meticulousness and proof and rigor is in a way greater when you are writing counter hegemonic narratives because you don't get any kind of uh, what Parenti referred to as a free ride down the mainstream. You're really saying that, like, no, the prevailing wisdom is wrong about X, Y, and Z. And so when you get into these areas where the establishment is lying about something, it's very, very, very tedious. If you want an example of this in the, the uh, contemporary example, look at Aaron Maté writing about Russiagate. Okay, that is, to me, seems the most tedious subject to study ever because it's a made-up conspiracy theory. It's very boring to look at all of these things and, and to suss out exactly where they're lying and who was lying when, but he act, that's been like, you know, uh, something he's put a lot of energy into. But this is, he's really working into parapolitics um, in parapolitical areas. He's really working with the intelligence agencies. He's working with people lying in power and using the authority of the state and its control over the media apparatus to lie about politics and to impact political outcomes that way. And so this is, an, you know, his, his scholarship on Russiagate is an example of how you want to deal with um, conspiratorial behavior on the part of elites. Um, and in this case, it's the bizarrest one of all, because it's a, it's what amounts to, as we mentioned before, 
a conspiracy to fabricate a conspiracy theory uh, for political purposes. And so this is this kind of work is is a way to to that is a model for how you would you would deal with these issues uh, going forward. You have to look at the evidence at hand and you need to not and you need to be fearless about saying when institutions that are vested with authority uh, when they are lying, more or less, or when they're just wrong either way. Yeah, I would say another example, it's not as contemporary as IF Stone, and especially, you know, IF Stone's weeklies methodology and exposing the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which I mean, talking about conspiracies, this is very well documented. And if you look at his, his, his methodology, it's similar to yours. I mean, it, it involves pouring through these government documents and meticulous research that, I mean, I can imagine it takes an insane amount of time but it does sometimes re- lead to uh, very convincing results because it's from the horse's mouth. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire. 